Philippians 1, we'll begin the second half of verse 18. If you'll see the paragraph there is broken up in the middle of verse 18 on page 1826 if you're using the Pew Bibles. We'll read then verse 18b through verse 26. I will finish reading and say this is the word of the Lord. You may respond with thanks be to God for the grass withers and the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Hear now God's holy word, Philippians chapter 1. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, what we know not, teach us. What we have not give us, and what we are not, make us. Build us up through your word now. Speak and give new life. And Father, we do want to remember also Grace Reitzma, uh, who is uh, recovering and uh, allowing viral infection to work its way through her body. Strengthen her and uphold her. We remember her this morning and ask that you would be pleased uh, to restore her health to her among the many others for whom we pray uh, each and every week. And we give all of that into your hands, knowing that you are a good and sovereign God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes after a great performance in a game, or perhaps a a wonderful feat that leaves people in awe, uh, the person who has The athlete or daredevil perhaps who has done this thing will give an interview right afterwards and a common question is what was going through your mind as you made the big shot or as you were really in the zone or as this all unfolded before the eyes of the world and you left people in awe. The reason for that question is that it's thought that it enhances the experience of the spectator to get a little glimpse into the thinking of this hero, this athlete, this strong person. We want to know how the greats think among us. How do the titans think in our world? Do they think in similar ways to us? Do they have mental fortitude that goes beyond the ways that normal people think? Do they even think at all? Are they just merely reacting? Oftentimes the answers they give are Uh, less than riveting, and uh, pretty much the same in every case. Paul was no athlete, at least as far as we know, but he gives us a kind of glimpse into his process of thinking here. 
He also gives us a glimpse into a a bit of emotional and spiritual reasoning. He works some things out. He, He looks at the circumstances of his life and teaches God's people how they are to think about the circumstances of life. He is imprisoned, and yet he's rejoicing. In many ways, this is confusing in the eyes of the world. Uh, Even in the face of other Christian preachers who are denigrating Paul and perhaps speaking ill of him as he is under Roman house arrest, but he still has joy. I think a good word to describe it is unshakable joy. He faces possible death at the hands of the Roman Empire. Or his other alternative is that he goes back into his life, which is a life completely lived in service to others, almost no time for him to take up a hobby or for leisure. This is not the kind of life that Paul had. His choices then seem bleak to many, but he sees them as completely glorious. We should not miss that. These bleak choices for Paul that he's able to think and reason and proclaim to us are glorious alternatives. Why? Because the ultimate end for human life is the glory, the exaltation of God in Jesus Christ and the prospect that we will enjoy the presence of Christ our Savior when we leave this life. So Paul lets us into his thinking so that we can do the same. That's really the thrust of this passage. He shows us, he shows the Philippians, and by the inspiration of the Spirit, he shows us this process of thinking so that we can do the same. We are confronted with this message so that we will have a more deeply rooted love for Christ that allows us to feel the thrill of serving our Savior every day. We often look at those athletes, perhaps, uh, like, like I do, perhaps maybe you don't, but I do, you, you wonder what it's like to feel the thrill of thousands screaming at something you have done. Christians are invited to feel the thrill of serving their Savior every day, of living for his glory. Paul said this is the greatest joy that you can have in this life, to be focused and to live for God's glory. Let's see how this text tells us and teaches us to do this. We are reminded that Paul has been giving a bit of a missionary update to the Philippian church. And he has said, even though I am imprisoned, even though I am under uh, Roman house arrest, the gospel is advancing. All of this has not been in vain. Why? Because the, the message of salvation is still getting out. And Paul says, it's been impressive that I've been able to proclaim Christ to the entire Roman imperial guard. Not only that, but God's people are being built up to be more courageous to speak the word of God in the midst of a hostile world. So Paul says, I will rejoice. And I will continue to rejoice. Perhaps not an easy thing for him to do. Commentators uh, make the, the observation that it's likely that Paul here is letting us in to the fact that he is fighting to maintain joy. Fighting to continue, as he says, to rejoice. But we should notice that at the beginning of our passage he says, I will continue to rejoice. It's a a forward-looking future tense verb that he uses there. And Paul was no fortune teller, soothsayer. He didn't know exactly what was going to come his way. He didn't know all the circumstances that he would be met with. But what does he say? I'll continue to rejoice. No matter what the circumstances are that come my way, I will 
rejoice. I will have joy in Christ. This is unshakable joy. And God desires this for his people. It's one of the main reasons that God has given us Philippians. So that we can know that God desires his people to have joy. And so that we can, in Christ, by the power of the Spirit, engage in that battle to rejoice and to continue to rejoice no matter the circumstances. And Paul tells us how we might do that here in this passage. Right from the start, we need to understand uh, how... Paul is reasoning through this situation in which he finds himself. Imagine that someone says to you, uh, you you go to uh, a fortune teller uh, before you start a job. You uh, perhaps are not living, imagine you're in a different life, right? And you go to a fortune teller as you start a new job. And uh, this person says, well, you're going to really enjoy this job. And uh, about a year into it, you're going to go through an extreme crisis at work. It's going to be really bad for you. You're going to have to work through it, but it's going to last for a short time. You're going to show yourself to be highly skilled in the midst of this crisis. You're going to come through it, and you're going to get a huge raise after this crisis. Let's imagine that about a year in, everything begins to unfold the way that this soothsayer has predicted. So when this crisis comes upon you, if you're confident in the fortune telling that has taken place, it will probably be fairly easy for you to bear with the crisis and maintain a positive attitude, right? Well, as this person told me and predicted, it's all going to turn out okay, so I'll maintain a positive attitude. So is that what Paul is doing here? He says here that he is confident for his deliverance, and we read it in the context of being imprisoned, being under house arrest, and we say, It seems like Paul is saying, I am confident that I'm going to get through this situation okay. I'm not going to be executed for my faith. I'm not going to come under any further Roman abuse. I'm going to be released. I'm going to be able to go free. But for a couple of reasons, this is impossible as to what Paul is saying. This is not what he's saying. And we could go through all the list of reasons that make it quite obvious, but just one thing that we make note of at the end of verse 20, Paul says he is confident of his deliverance, whether it's by life or by death. He is picturing this deliverance, whatever it is, and he's saying, it will happen whether I live or I die. Thus, even if Paul is executed for his faith, For his being an apostle in the service of Jesus Christ, he will be delivered. This word for deliverance is actually the word salvation. He means being saved from the guilt and the power of sin. He means ultimately being freed from a fallen existence in this age. He means being given eternal life. This is what Paul means by his deliverance. And he says, this crisis through which I am going is contributing to that salvation. Paul's not saying that his salvation is in any way in doubt. But it is to show us how we ought to view our life and our circumstances. As he says in 2 Corinthians, what does he say? The the sufferings that we endure, the, the valleys through which we go, what does it do? It produces a weight of glory. It allows us, in other words, to enjoy the glory of God in Jesus Christ in eternal life, to enjoy the kingdom of God and the life that he gives to us. 
But Paul says, whether I live or I die, I will be delivered. I will have salvation. He's not thinking in earthly terms. The sense of the eternal continues in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and I hope, both of these terms, eager expectation and hope, they are dripping with the eternal. They are terms that that point us beyond the horizon of this world. The eager expectation, really the only other place that it occurs in the writings of Paul is Romans 8, where it says that the creation eagerly awaits the revelation of the sons of God in creation, or in, in the resurrection. That is to say that this world is latent with an energy pushing it forward to where the curse will be lifted, to where sin and death will reign no more. And where God and his righteousness and his life will ultimately reign in the consummation. The creation eagerly awaits that, as it says in Romans 8. As for hope, that is perhaps that most forward-looking of all Christian virtues. Thus, people may say it is the most Christian of all virtues. We were saved in hope. We live in hope. We hold on to hope. It doesn't just hang in midair, does it? It's not like... Uh, Christian, the Christian virtue of hope is not like uh, hoping something good happens in the future. You know, uh, hoping that uh, the test you take next week will be fairly easy. Hoping your team wins the big game. That's not Christian hope. Christian hope does not hang in midair. It's anchored in Christ. Hope allows us, hope allows our faith to grasp onto the eternal. It's confidence. It's surety. That what God has promised to us, he will give to us. It's his eager expectation and hope, but for what? So he's dripping with this sense of the eternal, but his hope specifically here is that he will not be ashamed. There are at least two senses in which Paul may mean this, and I think both are operative here. The first is quite obvious. It seems that Paul has this hope that he will not be ashamed of the gospel. That he will speak with courage. That whenever he is given an opportunity, he will proclaim the truth of Christ. This message of Jesus Christ, of sins forgiven by belief in him, is a message that is a stumbling block to the Israelites. And it is folly to Greeks, as 1 Corinthians says we ourselves living as christians in this world we may believe this gospel with all of our hearts we may rejoice in this gospel with all of our hearts but isn't it true that oftentimes we shrink back and don't possess the courage to speak the name of christ when we are given the opportunity so paul looks inward and he says that one of the things for which he hopes is That he will not be ashamed of the gospel. And that he will speak with courage. But the fuller meaning is that which fuels his courage. And this is really where you see that sense of the eternal and the eager expectation and hope of Paul. Paul's great hope is that on the last day, the day of judgment, when all the world and all those who have been created by God will stand before him. And Paul's great hope is that he will not be subjected to disgrace at the day of judgment. That he will not be ashamed. That he will not come under God's condemnation. That he will be vindicated as a son of God. Paul says, this is what I hope for. This is 
my hope that God will vindicate me on the day of judgment. It's interesting, Paul alludes here to the book of Job, a particular passage in the book of Job. And of course, Job is this figure who comes under this, this avalanche of suffering. And the process of the book of Job is, have I, or in the mind of Job is, have I done something to directly deserve this suffering? I feel like I have served my God. I believe that I have lived in faith towards him and in service towards him. And so Job is reasoning that out. And the passage to which Paul alludes here is from Job chapter 13. It says this, Job says, Though he slay me, though he kill me, though he take everything away from me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. I will argue my ways to his face, he says. This will be my salvation, like what Paul says in his deliverance. This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before him. Job's hope was that he would stand before God and be blameless on the day of judgment. The great hope that Paul and that we all have is that we shall stand before God. But we shall stand before God, how? In Christ, not in our own righteousness. Paul says, I give my life unto the service of the gospel, this life that is lived in Christ and because of his righteousness that he gives through the gospel, I know that I will not be ashamed for I live believing that message. I live clinging to that hope. It's inviting us to do the same. We are invited as God's people to look forward to the exact same thing in similar ways. The Belgic Confession speaks of the last day and it says this, The faithful and the elect will be crowned with glory and honor and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped away from their eyes and it will finally be known that their cause had been the cause of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for a gracious reward, the Lord will cause them to possess such a glory as never entered the heart of man to conceive. Thus, we like Paul, brothers and sisters, are to have an eager expectation and hope that we will not be ashamed on the day of judgment. That God will not put us to shame. And that ought to fuel our courage here in this life. For those who wait on the Lord shall never be put to shame, as Psalm 25 says. None who wait for you shall be put to shame. We also heard the same kind of message in Romans chapter 5, doesn't it? Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Hope does not shame us. Romans chapter 10, Paul says, Everyone who believes in him, quoting Isaiah, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This message that is folly to the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Your sins will be forgiven. That is folly to the world, to the watching world. But everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. He will make it right. He will even the balance. He will overcome sin and death. Let your eager expectation and hope be like the Apostle Paul's here by the grace of God. But there's something else that is forward-looking that fuels the way that Paul lives 
in this way. And it is quite simply the glory of Christ. What is Paul's one supreme goal? The glory and the exaltation of Christ. This is one of those things that that has sort of a, a symbiotic relationship within itself in the Christian life. The more you desire to see the glory of Christ in your heart, the more that you love it, the more you will show it. John Owen says this, and I'll, I'll quote him a bit at length here, but this is what he is saying. He's saying, the more you behold the glory of Christ, the more you desire to show it forth. Listen to what our forefather says here. It is by beholding the glory of Christ by faith that we are spiritually edified and built up in this world. For as we behold his glory, there he's saying, by faith you are seeing that Christ is exalted. Just like what Paul says in Philippians 2. He's sitting at God's right hand. He has been raised up. As we behold his glory, he says, the life and power of faith grow stronger and stronger. It is by faith that we grow to love Christ. So if we desire strong faith and powerful love, which give us rest, peace, and satisfaction, we must seek them by diligently beholding the glory of Christ by faith. In this duty, I desire to live and to die. He sounds like Paul here, doesn't he? On Christ's glory, I would fix all my thoughts and desires. The more I see of the glory of Christ, the more the painted beauties of this world will wither in my eyes, and I will be more and more crucified to this world. It's the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is such a a foundational psalm to the Christian life because you look around and the wicked are flourishing. And sin is, is, is rampant through the world. And when will God vindicate the cause of his people? I'm thinking about the ways that Christians have been abused and killed and mistreated even in the past seven days. How long, O Lord? The heart of Psalm 73, you look around, you take all that in. It says, whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Make him your portion. Paul tells us how this happens right at the beginning of our passage. He says it's by through your prayers, the prayers of God's people. Paul asked here and and in other places that God's people would pray for him, that he would have courage, that he would show boldness to continue to speak the name of Christ. If Paul is so diligent in seeking the prayers of God's people what should that tell us about how we should seek the prayers of God's people be thankful when people are praying for you not just as some sort of obligatory thing but that we pray each other through the challenges of this life believing that God truly that God's grace truly comes to us through the prayers of God's people it not only happens by the prayers of God's people it happens by the power of the spirit prayers of God's people, the Spirit of God poured out even particularly through those prayers. So Paul then applies uh, this mindset. He applies this mindset that he lays out. It's, it's uh, seeking deliverance in salvation, living all for the glory of Christ. He applies this mindset to his current circumstances. Two things that lie before him. I may die at the hands of the Roman government or I may be, continue, uh, I may be allowed to continue working as an apostle of Jesus Christ, going through this world and proclaiming the gospel. 
Serve Christ with all that you have. And you think of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the many challenges and difficulties he faced. Most people wouldn't want that life. Serve Christ in that way or die. Many people would say, this seems like two pretty bad choices. Paul sees them as wonderful alternatives. uh, Wonderful options. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says, I don't know which one I should choose. It's almost like he's thinking that he is in control over the situation. What what he's actually saying is, my God is in control of the situation. He's saying uh, that it doesn't matter which Roman governor doles out this judgment. I have a king that is above the highest king on this earth. I have a petition that I can make in the throne room of heaven. And as we said today in our prayer, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. It's like a stream of water. Uh, the strongest and most powerful tyrant who has ever lived, had nothing compared to the power of God. God's people have an advocate that is higher than the highest king. And that's what Paul is saying here, that God is in control. So serve Christ or die. How does he apply what he has taught us so far? It's quite simple. It's this life is good, but it's not ultimate. This life is good, but it's not ultimate. When Paul says something like, to live is Christ, but to die is gain, people think, that sounds so morbid, that did Paul even have any appreciation for this life? Was he so heavenly minded that he he was no earthly good at all? Did he walk around hoping for the end of his life and hoping for the end of the lives of others around him? Well, no, there are places where Paul says, Uh, His friends are saved from sickness and if he would have lost them, he would have had sorrow upon sorrow. Paul teaches us that Christian heavenly mindedness embraces this truth. This life is good, but it's not ultimate. Think about the kind of errors people fall into when approaching this life. Some, Some people make this life such an idol That all they can do is live for gods like health and wealth and pleasure. If this life is all that you have and you have to get the the most enjoyment out of it that you can, then you have to give yourself to the idol gods of health and wealth and pleasure. Another form of idolatry is very similar to that, but it's, it's on the other side of a bad experience. When the idolized gods of this world let you down, When it all goes wrong for you and you see that the pleasure that you desire in this life is not going to come your way, what often happens? People are filled with despair and they see that this world really is hopeless and there really is no reason to go on. Paul says, he leaves it up to the sovereignty of God, doesn't Doesn't he? He says, this life is good, but it's not ultimate. Each and every moment that God gives to me, I will seek to serve him. I know, Philippians, that you will be better if I remain and minister to you. That is what I am doing now, and that is what I will do as long as God calls me to do so. Whate'er my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. It's a freeing thought, isn't it? That really, the life that God gives to us It's all in his hands. Every breath, every meal, he's already determined it. He knows how to provide for his people. 
So he says to live is Christ and to die is gain. We, we think we know what Paul means by this kind of phrase. Is it that it, we, we're so familiar with it and we've heard it so much. We, we kind of think we grasp most of it. But let me give you just a couple of things to think about uh, what Paul is talking about here. Surely he is uh, reiterating what he says in Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. This is perhaps a shortened way to say that. When Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain, he means at least three things. First, his life is made new in Christ. And that's really being set free from condemnation, being forgiven of your sin, being given the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Christ. We are crucified with Christ in the sense that God looks upon us and he looks upon us as if our penalty of sin has been paid because it has been paid in Jesus Christ who died for us. I've been crucified with him and my life is is made new. I have this this new experience of life, this new outlook on life because I'm not under the condemnation of a just God. Life is made new in Christ. Secondly, life is lived in union with Christ. All the things that we experience, temptation, trial, we go through them with the cognizance, the awareness of our new identity in Christ. Most of our struggles with sin are they stem from a problem of being able to rest in the new identity we have in Christ. To think through the new identity that we have in Christ. So our life is made new in Christ. We're forgiven. Our life is lived in vital union with Christ by the power of the Spirit. And then third, all of life is to be about the glory of Christ. Paul is saying, at the end of my life, the only one who ought to receive any acclamation any honor, any credit for my life is Jesus Christ himself. That is the great joy of God's people. That's what Paul is saying, and he's calling us into that. Living is about Christ, it's in Christ, it's to Christ, and it is for Christ. Paul invites them into this way of thinking to bring them into the joy that he feels. Feel the thrill of living for the glory of God in Christ Jesus. There's a story that almost certainly is the stuff of legend, but it works well for the reformed mindset, so I'll share it here. In the Revolutionary War, there was a village that's under assault, and people are running around, and and all confusion and chaos is ensuing. And uh, two figures walking with purpose, they're they're not ignoring the kinds of problems, but they have a calm and, and, a, and a peace that goes beyond uh, what everyone else is experiencing. And they kind of meet eyes. And as they come closely, one says to the other, what is the chief end of man? The other says to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. The ability to see this life as good but not ultimate allows us to honor the time that God gives to us. And to seek to serve him in Christ. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. The Philippians are going to be tempted to lose courage, just like Paul was. They're going uh, to be tempted to lose sight of the eager expectation and hope that they have. They are going to be tempted to forget the joy of exalting Christ in all circumstances. And thus Paul calls them. He shows them how he has processed it so he can invite them into thinking the same way. See how Paul is leading his people 
how he's leading us to that Christ hymn of chapter 2. For that which fuels our joy, that which fuels our desire to honor God and to persevere in the faith is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not our own obedience. It's not our own strength. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was in the form of God. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. And so he ends by saying, our joy is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, though you may be encouraged by the stand that I have taken, understand and know that the life I live is in Christ alone. Our desire should be that of this prayer in the Valley of Vision. It says this, to bring honor to thy name is my sole desire. Use me as thou wilt. Do with me what thou wilt. Let thy kingdom come. Let me be willing to die unto that end. And while I live, let me labor for thee to the utmost of my strength. We live and we stand only in Christ. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Embrace that vision for life. The way that God calls us to live. Trusting in his sovereignty. Trusting only in the work of Christ. And knowing that through the prayers of God's people and the power of the Holy Spirit, he upholds you unto the last day. Jesus, I, my cross, have taken all to leave and follow thee. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that no matter what, God and heaven are still our own. Give to us by your grace, your sanctifying grace, this view of the heavens, this view of new life. We give it all into your hands and we, even in these moments, are humbled to be called your people. Give us courage to live for you, to hold on to our faith, to even speak the name of Christ when we are called upon to do so. May we live evermore realizing how glorious it is to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. We pray in his name. Amen.